1: Teal Talk Radio Season Six, Episode Twelve. Welcome to season six, episode 12 of TL Talk Radio. I'm Lynn Funy Hatton.
2: And I'm Randy Zickenfoos. Today we're speaking with David Hool, a futurist thinker and speaker. David has been speaking and writing about the future for well over a decade. He writes the highly regarded futurist blog Evolution Shift with the tagline A Future Look at Today. You may recall our conversation with David on last season's podcast. David is also author of numerous books and ebooks, including his influential book, The Shift Age, and his book about transforming K-12 education, Shift Ed, A Call to Action for Transforming K Twelve Education. Today we're speaking with David about his most recent ebook trilogy, Moving to a Finite Earth Economy Crew Manual.
1: So welcome back to the podcast, David.
3: Thank you, Lynn. Happy to, I'm glad to be back anytime with you guys.
1: Oh, great. Well, let's get the conversation started. Can you give us a personal story or a connection about how you became so passionate about the global climate crisis?
3: Um, It goes back to around 1970. Um, I know that's ancient history for students today, but um, I was a young man and I went to the first Earth Day and I'd also just read a book by uh, our Buckminster Fuller, one of the three great futurists that I follow along with Marshall McLuhan and, and Alvin Toffler. And it was called uh, Operate, an operating manual for spaceship earth. And in it, Fuller said, we live on spaceship earth, meaning we're alone in the cosmos as far as we know it, and we're not getting resupplied. So we need to create an operating manual that is a general systems approach for humanity. And if we don't, there will be problems. He followed that a year later by uh, Utopia or Oblivion, saying in several decades, meaning right now, we're gonna be in a fork in the road, Utopia or Oblivion. And then right around Earth Day 1970, Marshall McLuhan came up with the phrase, there are no passengers on Spaceship Earth, we are all crew. So those two phrases, Spaceship Earth, and there are no passengers in Spaceship Earth, we all crew stuck with me as the single most profound statement surrounding any enveloping any conversation about climate change. And clearly, I moved forward with that in the 70s and 80s and started reading the research. And um, and then fast forward to about six years ago, I'd written books, as you mentioned, on on uh, education also in healthcare and marketing and i wanted to write a book on climate change because i was concerned and in the two years it took to write that book with uh, my co-author tim rummage who's head of environmental studies at ringland college where i'm the futurist in residence it so alarmed me that i said as a futurist it would be a dereliction my professional duty not to talk about climate change so i've been aware of it since my 20s the thinkers that i read in most respect are um, uh, influenced it and and then i read some science fiction i mean i'm sure there's some science fiction readers in your audience if you read dune you can understand what can happen uh catastrophic climate events to planets right so a lot of science fiction as well
2: so a couple weeks ago i was actually in new york when the un general assembly was getting together and they had all the Um, climate change uh, events going on, and uh, one of the things that I took away was that there was a lot of talk about people doing things and taking action, but when you ask people what action they're taking, they kind of look at you and couldn't really come up with anything. So it seemed like it was a lot of talk and, and not a whole lot of action. So in your book, you actually share three things that we need to do now. So what are these, what new knowledge sets, skills, and dispositions do we need to acquire to address um, this idea of climate change as as crew members on Spaceship Earth?
3: Right. The three big things. Um, I want to second what you just said. There's all talk, no action. Everybody says they're concerned, but they don't understand the reality. And and I'll talk about that in a minute. But I'll I'll, I'll read read from the book, okay, because they're real short. Uh, the three things humanity needs to do. Number one, eliminate the burning of fossil fuels as quickly as possible and significantly lower the rate at which we are consuming Earth's resources. So that's what everybody talks about. And people think if if we take care of that, we're done. No, we've just begun. The second thing is we have to draw down the greenhouse gases already in the atmosphere. And the reason for that is that since 1970, 1980, we put 600 gigatons of carbon into the atmosphere. What people don't understand, they understand we're putting carbon up, but they don't understand that carbon lasts in the atmosphere for centuries. That there is stuff, there's carbon up there since 1800 London, right? So it is that aggregation and accumulation of carbon in the atmosphere that has increased the warming. There's a direct time congruency from 1980 to now on the increased uh, warming of the planet and the accumulation of CO2 in the environment. Pre-industrial revolution, there were 720 gigatons of carbon in the atmosphere, now there's 1300. And that 1300 up 600 completely correlates to warming. That's the huge thing that people don't understand. And the third thing, and this is probably most important for educators, is to create crew consciousness in as many of today's 7.8 billion passengers on spaceship Earth as possible. And crew consciousness is a new way of thinking about oneself relative to the planet.
2: And you do spend um, a lot of time in your book, really, I think, giving the reader um, some really explicit action steps that they can start to take today and yeah. then years from now as, as uh, the, the problem hopefully gets uh, better addressed by society mm-hmm.
3: an example let me just do this with the two of you um how much one of you how much do you pay monthly on you for your electricity average
2: i pay a hundred dollars
3: okay so you're an average american <laughs> you picked the
1: wrong person
3: <laughs> well that means you live in a small place and you're very and you're very conscious of Electrical use, right?
2: Pretty much so, yeah. Okay. I'm only one person, though, too.
3: So let me ask you the follow-up question. How much energy are you paying for? You don't know, right? No, I don't.
2: I don't know. I never look at my electric bill. I just make sure that it's around that point.
3: By the way, when I spoke at NASA and I asked 100 NASA scientists this question, they couldn't answer it either, Mm. which means that when you come... When your bill comes in the mail or online or however you pay it, you look at it, and if it's $100, oh, I'll pay it. In other words, you've been conditioned to be a price-oriented consumer relative to electricity. If it's $120 or $130, you kind of go, wait a minute, why? Oh, yeah, it was really, really hot, so I had the air conditioning. You'll make some extrapolation. We say do the 2% solution. The average American spends $100 a month on electricity, which is about a thousand kilowatt hours per month. And what we say is on a constant basis, cut it 2%. So next month you want your bill, you want to have 980 kilowatt hours, not a thousand. Do that for six months. You're down to 880 kilowatt hours and that's you've saved a lot of money and you've become conscious. In other words, move, move, A crew member does not look at how much the bill is. A crew member looks at how they can lower their electricity. So if you in your household, Randy, were to say, okay, I want next, I want the month after next to be, I want the bill to be um, for 980 kilowatt hours. So what do we do? We don't leave lights on. We adjust the thermostat up or down depending on the season. We unplug all these white things we used to plug in because Stuff that's plugged in, waiting for you to plug in, takes 10% of your electricity. You, all of a sudden, you are crewing for the planet because your electricity largely comes from fossil fuels. So to the degree that you are crewing how much you use, you are positively, that, that's crew consciousness, right? Crew consciousness is knowing that at the supermarket, paper or plastic, you're given two bad choices, right? You always bring your bag. You always have a recyclable bag that you bring and carry. Mm -hmm. So once you start to think as crew, you change your relationship to the earth. And the second thing you do is you become a member of a growing group of crew members so that the question, does what I do make a difference, is answered. So for example, using electricity, if you just did that, it wouldn't be a blip. If 10 of you households didn't, but what if 10 million households in the United States cut their energy by um, 15% in the next year? That will change the market. That will lower things. Same thing, that, Did people know that the single cause of climate change is siloed thinking. We don't know the consequences of our action. You eat a four pound hamburger, and that triggers six pounds of CO2 into the atmosphere. You buy a t-shirt, the production of that is two pounds of CO2 into the atmosphere and 80 gallons of fresh water used, not of which is on. So we don't know that. The garbage is picked up in my area in Florida on Tuesday morning, then it's gone. No, it's not gone. It just moved to another part of the spaceship. So once you start thinking that way and it scales, I eat a fraction of the beef, right? So I used to have two cheeseburgers a week. Now, I, I, because of other things I'm training, I'm not eating any meat at all. So if I, I did a video where cut it by 75%. So if I were to eat, you know, um, half a pound of beef a week, that's 12 pounds of CO2, that's 50 pounds of CO2 in a month. If I cut that by 80%, I'm only putting up 10 pounds. So it's the cause and the effect of actions and consequences that crew consciousness represents. And that's a pretty good way to think about yourself relative to the world anyway.
1: So let's jump into the three economies that you talk about. The growth economy that's propelled us into this current situation. Um, how the finite economy is a way for us to address it. And what can we do? What are the indicators that will be moving to that more finite Earth economy? And you know, how do we need to think about um, differently about the metrics we use and you gave us an example there with a very concrete example with um, the electric bill and reducing some of our kilowatt hours
3: um, the three economies are growth economies which is basically where anybody who is ever will ever listen to this podcast has spent their entire life growth economies the measurement of which are gdp and all the metrics of growth economies are purely based on production and ever more growth. The circular economy, which is the second one, came about in the first uh, uh, Earth Day, reduce, reuse, recycle. Circular meaning we will buy stuff and reuse it. And that is still what many climate scientists are saying to do. The problem with that that we realized in our book uh, is that 50 years since Earth Day 1, it's only 9% of the global GDP. So in 50 years, we failed in creating a circular economy. And so that is no longer valid. We have to move to a finite Earth economy, and we called it that because we live on a finite Earth. Mm -hmm. So how can you have finite resources and infinite growth? It is no longer viable when we're close to 8 billion people. If we only had a billion people, we wouldn't have climate change right? So we're overpopulated and we're all consuming more. So the finite earth economy, so growth economies are linear. In other words, you extract, you manufacture, produce, you distribute, you sell, it's bought, it's consumed, and there's waste. And it's linear, and then you start over. There's no such thing as a growth economy that doesn't create waste. Therefore, a circular economy theoretically, is we repurpose what we buy, but we've failed at that because of all the ways that we live our lives. So uh, uh, a finite, uh, uh, excuse me, a growth economy is all about me. Growth economies don't see you as Lynn and Randy. They see you as two consumers and how much you consume, right? Um, And a circular economy is a little bit, mostly about me, but a little bit about us. Like I'm doing my part in reducing, reusing, recycling, and I buy used stuff sometimes. What a finite earth economy is, is conscious non-consumption. And that means that you, you know, like we talk in our book, we wanna make new a bad word. Anything you buy that's new Whatever you buy that's new somehow adversely affects affects the earth. If you buy used, it doesn't because the earth has already given that up. So use cars, use clothing, use books, use anything should be made exalted. So those are the three, the uh, growth economies, which are linear and create waste, the circular economy, which in theory is good, but we haven't done it. And so- at the climate crisis stage when we have no alternative but to go to a finite earth economy
2: so we've lived on this earth and we've produced more than it can sustain and now we're dealing with all the after effects of that and it just keeps growing and growing and growing until we change our behavior so how about you know we live in this context of technology and advancements and probably things within the next 10 years are going to be invented uh, in the area of technology that could help us uh, address some of these uh, issues that we're that we're dealing with. So what are some of the technologies, or what can we expect to be some of the technologies uh, in the time between now and 2030 that can help us get to this finite earth economy?
3: I, I will answer that with a, with a quote that is the quote, that fronts the technology chapter in my book, Moving to a Finite Earth Economy. I've never been able to source it as a quote. I've only sourced it apocryphally. So two days after John F. Kennedy in in the spring of 1961 said, by the end of the decade, we will successfully land a man on the moon and safely bring him home. um, James Webb, the great leader of NASA, 1961 to 1968, Got his direct reports together in Florida and said the following Gentlemen, the president just told us that we need to do something that has never been done before using technology that is yet to be invented to do it in a short amount of time and that safety is the top priority. Let's get to work. And to me, that is the single best quote about how we have to face climate change. We have to do something that's never been done before using technology that's never been invented. Okay, so first, the technologies, there's a lot of invented technologies, but due to misinformation and lobbying, aren't getting their due. Hmm. We take the so energy in energy. I take the approach in my book, all of the above. There is no way. One of the premises of the book is if we don't move to a finite earth economy or something very much like it. By 2030, there will not be civilization by 2100. I am totally convinced of that, even more so after doing the research of this book. So, the only way we can get, we're at 70%, 77% fossil fuels globally now, and we have to get to 70% green, meaning get uh, clean, meaning get fossil fuels from 77% down to 30% in 10 years. You cannot do that without nuclear. You have to have nuclear. You have to have wind, solar, geothermal, um, hydroelectric. Um, All those exist, but they aren't fully utilized. Mm -hmm. I have never met a person against nuclear power who wasn't an aging baby boomer who's an environmentalist, because we have all that legacy thinking. Mm -hmm. So we put in the book, for example, 2,400 people have died from nuclear power in the last 70 years. 10,000 people die a day due to air pollution triggered by fossil fuels. So every day, fossil fuels cause four times the deaths that nuclear power has caused in 70 years. So so we have to use all of the above for energy. Then we have to create new energy, new energy, ocean energy, which is wave technology. That's coming online. There's one that I've talk, been talking about for 10 years, which is space-based solar power. So you have a solar panel on Earth. It gets the sun when there's sun, but it's also filtered through heavy atmosphere. So if you were to go up 100 miles or 50 miles or 10 miles, the power of the sun is much more than down on the Earth. So space-based solar power is putting up, say, a five to 10 to 20 mile per side solar panel in, in the atmosphere geosynchronous, uh, orbiting around the planet. And that's, there's always sun cause it's above the clouds. There's no atmosphere and there's only a 5% loss factor getting it down to, to the surface of the planet. That's a huge infrastructure thing, but, um, for example, India thinks it's its future that if they can have one or two of these just for India, it'll handle all their all their uh, energy needs. So the key breakthrough, another one is energy storage technology. In other words, the problem with wind and solar is its a variable. No sun, no power, over you know, no wind, no power. So um, solar so uh, storage capacity, Elon Musk has has led the way on this, whereby store when there's sun, it stores all the sun in the battery. And when it's wind, it stores all the sun. So when it's overcast, you just pull from the battery. So for example, Elon Musk in his um, in his gigafactory, it's the world's biggest building, it's the world's biggest factory. It's in Reno, Nevada. He makes, he's producing um, uh, batteries storage he the entire factory is run by wind and solar making batteries that will store wind and Mm -hmm. solar so it's an end-to-end solution reason i'm taking so much time answering your question randy is that energy is the key right we have to get off a dirty energy and go to clean energy um then there's nuclear fusion which has been talked about for years and you know i'll believe it when i see it (laughs) i'm a futurist right so i get all these crazy people coming to me saying, I know a guy who's who in his garage makes cars run on water. You know, I mean, I'll believe it when I see it. Uh, The other technology is electrifying all transport. We we need to, you know, we know about electric cars uh, and that's where the entire industry is going. But the other interesting thing is that there's already air travel, commercial air travel, that's completely electric. Um, You can fly from Seattle to Portland four times in a day, which is less than 200 miles because you run a small plane, charge with the battery, 250-mile range, and then they pull the battery out and put another one in. The projections that I have seen are that by 2022, we will be able to have uh, electric flights with a 500-mile range, which is 70% of all the flights in the United States of America. And, and so... Then you start to realize, gee, all these airlines have internal combustion engine planes. So, how's that going to work out? Right. So, in other words, the reason I wrote this book as an urgent call to action is that I, for, I foresee all the issues of moving from a growth economy to a finite earth economy. I mean, when is Boeing going to make 737s uh, hmm. <clears throat> that are powered by battery? Right. Um, So the other technologies are about measurement. Um, We can now, over a 24-hour basis, using NASA satellites and others, measure emissions. Like, for example, about three months ago, climate scientists were really concerned about a sudden increase in methane in the atmosphere. And within three days, they were able to track it down to two factories in China, which were immediately shut down. Hmm. So as we move to a finite Earth economy, The key things we need to develop are carbon emissions measurements. So, for example, you turn on the nightly news, right? Well, here was the temperature today. Here's what happened in the news. Here's what the emissions were in Florida. Here's what the emissions were in the United States. Here's what the emissions were globally in the last 24 hours. So we're close to putting that into because if you move to a carbon reduction based economy, you have to be able to measure carbon. And and the the last the last there's a lot of things that are not technology, but you put in the technology like moving, getting out of industrial agriculture um, and going back to uh, regenerative farming. Um, And, you know, so just treating the soil differently and how we do that and how we grow our food and where we grow our food. Every part of that has a technological solution.
1: So you may have touched on this a little bit, um, designing and redesigning for climate change. You gave us an example of uh, changing the plane's engine, <laughs> right, giving it a 250-mile right. radius. Anything else you want to add to that, maybe another example, or you know, why it's important for us to think this way?
3: Well, you know, particularly knowing that largely educators are listening to this, um, I have said for 15 years that one of the most significant things that humanity is going to have to do, particularly America, is to retrofit the 20th century. Because if you go back to 1900, you think of any place in the United States, it was underbuilt, right? There there, there weren't really telephone lines. There wasn't, there wasn't TV towers, radio towers. There weren't airplanes. There weren't even cars, right? So think of the landscape we've created in the last 100 years, and we've quadruple the population of the planet. So what we need to do is go back and retrofit. So, for example, uh, probably in every community of a listener of this podcast is an empty big box store. Why is that the case? Because big box store retailers are collapsing, right? There's a mall a week closing in the United States of America. So now you have a vacant um, 10,000 big box store. It used to be you just find another retail chain to put in it. There's none in expansion. So what you do is you you make it a vertical garden where you like think of where I used to live Chicago, a vertical garden in Chicago that has five or six crop yields a year inside, no insecticides, organic. And it's it addresses the I want to know where my food is coming from. And it addresses the local food to table. So. A conceptual way of thinking about that is real estate always about highest use. A vacant, non-used retail store could become a high-use uh, agriculture hub. Uh, the other thing, of course, is it's 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 constant my entire lifetime. At least 20 to 25 percent of all the energy used in the install base of buildings in the United States of America is wasted. So retrofitting the buildings to be more energy efficient putting solar panels on the roofs or putting gardens on the roof, uh, uh, reshaping how we build our cities. The, whenever there's a flood or a heavy rain, we hear about runoff. Nature doesn't have runoff. Runoff is caused by concrete, right? So we need to rethink all our, when we were in expansion mode, particularly post-World War II, where everybody bought a house, bought a car, washing machine, you know, keeping up with the Joneses, we have to retrofit that entire thinking. That's legacy thinking in a growth economy, and we have to have crew consciousness in a finite earth economy.
2: So from our conversation, I think there's lots of parallels, one of the connections I'm making, between, in education here, one of the conversations that we're having is how do we move from school-centered to learner-centered, The sort of legacy thinking of when you and I were in school to a different way of thinking where it's a totally different paradigm, a totally different sure. way of thinking. And this this idea of the sustainable earth is, is the same sort of thing. We've got this legacy thinking, and how do we shift those mindsets to think for this finite earth economy as well? And I think that's our biggest challenge, and that's a lot of heavy lifting because people don't like to change their mindsets, at least very easily.
3: <laughs> well, you know, um, people don't like to change, but and I've had this conversation recently, some speeches that I've given her some more and, and, and also some classroom interaction. There is only one constant in the universe and that is change. So in other words, if the universe wasn't in a change mode, there would not be time. Time only exists to measure change. So when somebody says they don't like to change, or they, my father believed, and so I'm believing it too, or my family's always been a re- Republican, always Democrat, what they're doing is they're putting resistant, I always say, if you've got a point of view, it's a filter, you're not seeing clearly. Because if it's a fixed point of view, and everything in the world, everything in the universe, anything in the cosmos is in a state of change and you don't like change reflect on that
2: mm-hmm.
3: <laughs> because um it is it is we are sold to not change we are sold to believe that the good old days were the good old days forget the fact that we you know we talk about the 1800s we talk about do you realize you know that it was 170 years ago that the telegraph was invented which means that one ten thousandths of one percent of the time that modern humanity has been on this planet have we been able to communicate not face to face look how we're communicating right now via zoom right so a simple statement for that is more people will listen to mozart today in the world than ever listened to mozart in his entire life because you had to be in the room mm-hmm. right and yet we hold on to things like that we hold on to the if you drive in europe you have a you have a a narrow road. Why do you have a narrow road? Because the roads were defined by the Roman Roman Empire because it was two oxen and a wood yoke. And that's the same width. So so what you're really saying, the, the, uh, underneath what you're asking, Randy, is how do you change legacy thinking that people perceive as reality? When I give a speech as a futurist, I say, I need you to suspend what you think reality is because reality is what you've experienced in your lifetime and what has been passed on by your parents and your teachers. So the younger you are, the more it's the latter. You need to suspend that and think differently. Mm -hmm. And so it's really moving. In other words, if you think reality, what I'm going to tell you about the future, you're going to go, well, that can't work. So you can't live in a reality now and see the future, particularly, if you have a point of view or you don't like change, right? But the people who make the most money in the world, entrepreneurs, are people who see change as opportunity. The high-level concept of this book is, any listener to this podcast, if they've heard about climate science, they've heard about it from a client scientist or an ad, or an, uh, an advocate, an activist like Greta Thunberg, and I'd like to talk to her about her in a minute. So, um I'm a futurist, so the, what I'm bringing to climate change is a multiple view of all the dynamic forces. So on the one hand, we are in a critical crisis of climate change. In other words, it is happening now. The fight or flight mode is kicking in, right? If I were to say something bad's going to happen in 20 or 30 years called climate change, that's why we've done nothing. Well, we're a reactive species. When it happens, we'll deal with it, right? Now... We have to deal with it so the reason the book has resonance and this conversation has resonance is climate change is happening now so we're in fight or flight mode which all all the alarm bells are going off and what we have to realize that fight or fight flight there's no place to go we're on this planet and you can't fight climate change i can't stand that phrase fighting climate change we have to face climate change i want anybody who uses the word save the planet to stop that phrase it shows total ignorance it's a meme that people have pulled down when they want to show their environmental the planet doesn't care about the the planet's been around for 3.5 billion years it's gonna be around for 3.5 more billion years it doesn't care about us we don't need to save the planet plants we find we need to save ourselves from ourselves because of the fact that we are experiencing a WG, anthropomorphic global warming. So we have created the problem. So it is up to us to solve it. Otherwise, we go away. So climate change is nothing more than the planet reacting to growth economies.
2: Well, certainly lots to think about there. And I'm going to enjoy re-listening to this podcast and processing a lot of the the deep things that you just shared.
3: I I realize I get so excited and you... Give me open-ended questions i apologize for here's the quote i wanted to read from from my book which is now out in paperback um the quote from a friend of mine whose last job was president of the new york stock exchange and he's read the trilogy and here's what he had to say this is a must read book blah, 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 about major coming disruptions in capitalism that will rival the beginnings of the industrial revolution in both impact and opportunity Highly recommended for all ages of readers. In my opinion, two of the biggest things humanity faces today are climate change and the need to reinvent capitalism. This book provides a roadmap for both that is urgently needed. I just gave this book to a 10-year-old and also Bill Johnson, former president of the New York Stock Exchange and concerned grandfather. The single demographic that gets climate change are grandparents for the obvious reason.
2: So we finish our podcast off with a couple of uh, rapid response questions, and you've been through these before, but uh, let's look at the responses in this context of uh, sustained, sustainable Earth. So who's one expert our listeners should connect with to learn more about the global climate crisis?
3: Uh, it's hard for me not to say me on this, because this book, when I wrote it, I did so much research. There's so many climate change books that are still in the denial phrase and showing that it's real. This is the only, the state of climate crisis now is we have to do something. So my book is here is a plan here are metrics year by year, 2021, 2022. Here are the metrics we need to use. Here's what we need to do and get there by 2030. So I haven't read any other book that is addressing the simple issue, which is here's the action roadmap, either use mine or improve on mine. So, I'm going to be very egocentric and say, because I see us in crisis, this is the only book that is dealing with the crisis. I mean, there's a lot of great people who've written books um, up to now, um, but they aren't solution-focused. They are documenting the reality Mm -hmm. that we have. Mm -hmm. Um, So So
2: around this topic, how do you continue to learn? What do you read online, other people's books, or...? Anything that you'd want to share? I, How do you become a learner in this area?
3: Um, I get um, some 300 inbound emails a day that are mostly newsletters, research stuff. So, you know, the way I look at my inbox, I probably have 10 aggregated or uh, ind- individually generated things about climate change and the environment, about technology, about the future of healthcare, about the future of education, about the future of um, media and so on an everyday basis i'm looking widely at trusted sources that are reporting immediately and a little more depth uh uh analysis um so i think it's it, it, it there's no one answer because we're all different and every country's different and florida's different than new york so um I just read widely and I you know, Echo Watch, for example, is really good. There's a lot of good uh, in daily environmental, weekly environmental stuff. And I think it's important to read that because that is documenting what is going on. You know, in other words, do I want to stay abreast of world affairs or just read history? Mm-hmm. If you read climate mm-hmm. science books, you're reading just using past data to document their position. And what I'm getting is this is what's happening right now. So I would say to anybody who wants to learn more, uh, just type in environmental news or climate change news into Google and you'll see endless number of sites. I always follow NASA. I always follow NOAA. Echo Watch comes to mind. Um, uh, There's a number of other ones. So that would be my, my suggestion. Particularly for educators, because a a third grader, an eighth grader isn't going to be as interested in something that happened in the past about climate change as to what's going on now and how it's going to affect your life. Yeah, that
2: contextualized piece.
3: Yeah. Well, thank exactly. you so
1: much for sharing all those resources um, with us. We added a couple there and some links to your crew manuals as well as the show notes. Um, but tell us now, as we wrap up, what's next for you? What are you working on that you'd like to share with our listeners, David?
3: Um, two things. One, I have felt at my age that this was the book that my life prepared me to write. So I'm going all in to try to get exposure. Um, we're doing as many podcasts People say they can get me to influential people like Branson and Bloomberg. So I'm going all in on that. Um, and again, the, the sub moving to a finite Earth economy, it's out in paperback. You can get an ebook. and the, the subtitle is the Future of Humanity, Climate, and Capitalism. So if I can break through, this is what I'm going to do. The second thing, and hopefully I'll get it done and I'll send it to you in January, is a series of books called the 2020s. Um, the first one will come out to set up the decade. It's gonna be the single most disruptive, transformative decade in human history. It will rival any 30 to 40 years of change uh, in history. So those are the two things, really trying to get, I mean, I really believe that this, my book here, sorry to be holding it up and I'm not on the camera, but but uh, but that this book, um, It needs to be read, and it needs to be said. Well, we can. I'm not a policy person. I'm not a legislative person. But I've come up. You know, we need we need to take um, capital creation out of capitalism, and put carbon reduction in it. So it's in the tax code. So I'm all out on this because I. This is my last best shot to do what I can as a crew member of Spaceship Earth to prevent catastrophe and the end of civilization. And the 2020s is to help those navigate what's about to happen.
1: Well, thank you so much for sharing with us today, David. We've linked more about David's work in the show notes. In each episode, we leave our listeners with a question to think about with the idea of provoking conversation. This episode's question, what plan of action will you develop to ensure your young learners live and thrive on a sustainable earth? If you've enjoyed this episode, would like to comment or check out the resources shared today, visit the show notes at tltalkradio.org and look for season six, episode 12. That's all for this episode. We'll be back next week with another conversation featuring an innovative thought leader. Thanks again, David.
3: See you, David. My pleasure. Thank you so much.
1: Bye-bye.